Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing Shangyang. Shangyang is a Chinese political theorist born during the Warring States period, about a century after the death of Confucius and a decade before the death of Socrates in 390 BC. He died in 388, uh, 338, excuse me, 338. Originally, he was called Yang, and he was the son of a concubine. He served as a minor official under the state of Wei. He was plucked from obscurity by Duke Xiao of the state of Qin and installed as a minister in Qin. In 341, he led the army of Qin against Wei, forcing Wei to cede significant lands to Qin. As a reward, he received 15 cities in the territory of Shang as his personal fief. He thus became known as Shangyang, or Lord Shang. However, in 338, the duke died at just 44 years of age. The duke's son, who styled himself as King Huin, did not like Lord Shang very much. Huin ordered the execution of nine relations, demanding the death of Shangyang as well as all of his living relatives. The punishment standardly includes the spouse, the parents, the spouse's parents, the grandparents, the children, the grandchildren, the siblings, the siblings-in-law, the aunts and uncles, the spouses of the aunts and uncles, and even first cousins. So, Huin was really, really not very keen on Shang Yang. There are different accounts of his death. Some say that when Huin was a boy, Shang Yang punished him for an offense as if he were a commoner, and Huin bore a grudge. Most accounts have Yang being torn apart by chariots, though some have suggested this happened only after he was killed in battle. In one version of the story, Shang Yang tries to go into hiding, but is refused a room at an inn because he is unable to present state identification. This is meant to be ironic because Yang himself introduced the system of state identification. However, Huin keeps most of Shang's reforms, and the Qin state eventually unifies China a century later in 221. Most of the Book of Lord Shang was written by Shang Yang, but some additions have likely been made by prominent followers of his. So, what got Shang Yang killed? What was he up to that bothered people so much? Well, let's dig into what he had to say. So, for Shang Yang, there is no need to follow previous rituals, the past, the way things used to be done. Because if you look at history, what it shows is that people in the past often develop new solutions appropriate to their own situations. The chief lesson from history for Shangyang is that you shouldn't be bothered about history. You ought to move forward and come up with new policies that fit the situation you're in. Perhaps not surprisingly, Shangyang has a progress narrative. 
For him, society evolves in stages and the political solutions appropriate at earlier stages become inappropriate later on. In particular, he thinks morality is outmoded as a political tool. The increase in the size of the population has led to scarcity and scarcity has led to competitive behavior. And so moral norms, mores, are no longer adequate in this situation of acute scarcity and competitiveness to get people to behave. Knowledge has also become more widespread. And as knowledge becomes more widespread, the people become harder to rule. The more knowledgeable the people are, the more resistant they are to the moral trickery of priests and intellectuals. And so they have to instead be disciplined through rules. The rules need to be very clear and they need to apply to everybody. Shang Yang advocates strict punishments. Punishments that are abundantly obvious, where everybody knows exactly what will happen if you commit a crime, and punishments that clearly apply to everybody who commits the crime, even if it's a member of the ruler's family, even if it's the ruler themselves, no matter what class or station somebody comes from, the punishments have to apply to everybody. Shang Yang argues that if it is very clear what the punishments are and that the punishments will in fact be imposed, over time, you won't have to do as many punishments because people will stop doing the things that will get them punished. So against those who argue that his system is excessively cruel, he says, well, actually, if you follow it, you'll end up committing fewer executions in the long run. Right? Now, these punishments are not meant to morally improve the citizens. They don't contribute to the citizens' character. They don't make the citizens better people. For Shangyang, the citizens are not capable of being improved. The ruler must therefore conquer the people before any external conquest is possible. And this is done through the imposition of the rules. For Shangyang, the one who makes the rules is strong and the one who is influenced by the rules of others is weak. The strongest men are therefore the ones most likely to seek ways around the rules. And it's for this reason that the ruler must weaken the people. When Shangyang says that you need to weaken the people, he's saying you need to make the people obedient to rules. Because by definition for him, strong people don't follow the rules. They try to make their own rules. And that conflicts with the goal of unifying China and bringing an end to the conflict and chaos of the Warring States period. Right? So instead of generating virtue, the law is designed to create incentives that appeal to the citizens' selfishness. For Shangyang, people want glory and riches, and the ruler must use the law to make it the case that people can only obtain these things by serving the state. He says, quote, human beings have likes and dislikes. Hence, the people can be ruled. The ruler must investigate likes and dislikes. Likes and dislikes are the root of rewards and penalties. The disposition of the people is to like ranks and emoluments and to dislike punishments and penalties. The ruler sets up the two in order to guide the people's will and to establish whatever he desires. So these likes and dislikes, they may sound to you like appetites or aversions in Hobbes. And we'll come on eventually to the degree to which Shang Yang is similar to and different from some of these later Western 
European theorists. So how do people serve the state? Right. If you're trying to incentivize people to serve the state, what does that consist in? For Shangyang, people serve the state chiefly through agriculture and war. The state must ensure that farmers become rich to incentivize people to farm and that warriors become glorious to incentivize people to fight. He installs a system of merit, replacing traditional aristocrats with a set of merit-based ranks. Now, this policy greatly angers the aristocracy and it makes the aristocracy want him dead. As you know, might not surprise you, if you try to liquidate a class of nobles, that tends to get pushback. And this is, I think, another respect in which people might be thinking, hey, that sounds a little bit like 18th century France. Get rid of the nobles and have a system based on merit. There are some similarities and there are some differences. We'll come on to the, the differences. All right, so he says, quote, Today, the people seek offices and ranks, yet they are attainable not through agriculture and warfare, but through crafty words and empty ways. One of the things that's really distinctive about Shangyang is how much he hates intellectuals and talkers and people who don't farm and don't fight. He doesn't like artists. He doesn't like merchants. He doesn't like commerce. So for Shangyang, the opportunity to be an intellectual, to do art, to engage in commerce must be a reward for successful farming and successful warfare. You never get these things without first having farmed or fought. He describes 10 parasites that undermine the state. They are poetry, documents, rituals, music, goodness, self-cultivation, benevolence, uprightness, argumentativeness, and cleverness. When the state is ruled by these things, the people will not fight. And if they do fight, they will be easily beaten by enemies who are free of these things. And you can see how that might sound intuitive to somebody of this period. Generally, the tough barbarians from the north, you know, they don't have cultivation. They don't spend a bunch of time reading books, but they're very good at fighting. Kind of similar to, say, Nizam al-Malk's discussion of the steppe peoples from a few weeks back. So, learning distracts people from farming and war, and it also makes them stronger in the sense that it makes them less obedient and less willing to follow the rules. If they start thinking for themselves, they'll start questioning the rules. They won't follow them. And in this period, when people are questioning the rules and not following them, they're going off and establishing fiefdoms of their own. They're causing civil conflict. They're engaging in banditry and burglary and all sorts of other kinds of violent property crimes. They're causing civil conflict and and death at scale. So when we're talking about crime and disorder, we're talking about the kind of profound crime and disorder that marks, say, a Habesian state of nature. We're not just talking about petty crimes. Although part of the system is punishing petty crimes severely so as to prevent these other greater forms of disorder. I just want to emphasize that Theorists like Shangyang are operating from very, very disorderly periods that are very different from our own. And so that's motivating a lot of this focus on peace and order and survival. Similar to Hobbes writing during the English Civil War. 
as you know, every first year student at a university will remind you. Uh, now, there's no argument in this text for the state to develop its own forms of propaganda or learning to counter the existing forms. Instead of suggesting that the state should come up with its own system of learning or teach some book or some argument in school, you know, even Hobbes says, oh, Leviathan ought to be taught in school to students, right? There's no emphasis on any of that. No counter-propaganda from the state. All Shengyang wants is for the rules to be clear and for them to straightforwardly incentivize the behavior the state needs. He wants to liquidate the talkers as a class. He's not interested in hiring talkers, in trying to have talkers put out pro-state messaging. He's not interested in that. To him, once you invite the talkers in, the talkers start taking over everything and they ruin the whole thing. So you can't wield them or use them to defend the state. You have to just get rid of them. Because if talkers are honored, then you get this system of honors that has nothing to do with getting results. And getting results means farming and fighting. So that's what I want to start with. I've got more notes, but I want to start with that and see what Alex has to say about all of that. What did you think as you were going through Shang Yang's book? Um, he seems big on the virtue of faith, maybe, because it's about being single-minded and kind of unselfish and not changing all the time and maybe not getting to the essence of things, perhaps, but just just going for it. Yeah, he likes simpleness. He wants uh, the population to have a very simple attitude to things. He doesn't like complexity. Uh, because if the population is having to think about things in an overly complicated way, that leads to ways of living that are not oriented toward the basic things that the state requires. So forms of, of faith that are very straightforward can be accommodated, but forms that are elaborate and foc are focused on things like edification or, or making people more virtuous are to him a distraction and a problem. Even though the people will, I guess, become more self-governing and therefore have more discussion inside their families because they won't honor their family members or elevate them as some kind of countercult to the state, it's okay. Because I'm trying to say that even though he's starting with simplicity, it comes back to comple complexity as well. It's just the order is simple first and then complex, but just suppressed and taboo. But publicly, we're all simple. Yeah, for him, things have gotten very complicated because for Shenyang, as agricultural techniques have developed, we have this enormous population that we didn't previously have. And for him, this leads to scarcity and it leads to competitiveness and it makes it harder for morality to be the governing uh, force in social life. You can't just have norms and rituals and, and rights that people follow. Because the population is too large, there's too much pressure to compete. And with so many people, you can't know everybody. You can't have personal ties to large enough numbers of people for those kinds of ritualistic systems based on what is your relationship to this person or that person to get the job done. So because of this complexity, there's a need to kind of simplify things. And the state is there to make things simple. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, then this will happen. 
The state cuts through the complexity that's developed in society. And going back to that blame and shame game, as opposed to maybe a Confucian, elevate yourself above it all and set the example, yet don't they both come from a similar context of kind of extreme or not? Yeah. Yeah, the Warring States period gave birth to a lot of really interesting ideas in Chinese political thought. And so much so that a lot of the schools that developed in the Warring States period are continually referenced throughout Chinese history and continue to be referenced today. Uh, As far as Shang Yang's historical reputation goes, his reforms were pivotal in the rise of the Qin dynasty, but it is also frequently alleged that they played a major role in its collapse. So, to give you a sense of what ends up happening to the Qin state, it lasts, uh, you know, as, as a unified Chinese empire. Once it unifies, the unification only lasts for about 14 years. So, it collapses in 206, just three years after the death of the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang. Now, bear in mind, even though the period of unification is only 14 years, the Qin state as a whole lasts much longer than that. The Qin state goes back, you know, a full, you know, another hundred, you know, several hundred years. In terms of when when do the reforms take place, the reforms take place more than a hundred years before the collapse of the Qin state. So the reforms were not so effective, uh, not so ineffective that they immediately caused the collapse of the state, but they were not effective enough to allow the Qin state to impose the reforms on the whole of China successfully. Internally, within the original kind of core Qin territory, the reforms were successful. But once Qin unified China, the attempt to export the system to all parts of China, that was unsuccessful. So three years after Qin Shi Huang dies, there's a collapse. Uh, There's popular rebellion. The people are often said to have hated the rules and strict punishments that were imposed by the Qin state and that that is what drove them to rebel. However, the Han dynasty gets going in 202, less than five years later. And in the Han period, Shenyang's ideas remain influential and play a really significant role in how the Han bureaucracy is structured. Now, you've got to bear in mind, though, that it becomes very important in the Han period not to appear associated with Shenyang or with what what comes to be known as the legalist tradition. Uh, These people are viewed as having uh, contributed to the collapse of the Qin state by being overly strict and insufficiently interested in morality. So it becomes important to be Confucian in appearance, legalist in substance, as the Chinese expression goes. To maintain the appearance of Confucianism, you can't get rid of the class of moralizing talkers who perform that role of creating the essential appearance of a regime based on moral principles. So once in the Han period, it's acknowledged that you have to pretend to be Confucian. That means one of the things that Xiang Yang wants, the getting rid of the talkers, you cannot complete that. Because if you were to complete that, then that appearance of Confucianism would, would fall away. It therefore becomes impossible, sorry, Alex, just a little bit more, becomes impossible for political theorists to praise him or to openly identify with the legalist tradition. They can't say that they are influenced by him, but many of them are. 
nonetheless influenced by him. And the one that I wanted to, to bring up here as substantially influenced by Shang Yang is Chairman Mao. In high school, Mao Zedong wrote an essay praising Shang Yang. And as chairman, he framed the legalist tradition as progressive in contrast to the reactionary Confucian tradition. Now, you can see why Mao might think that. Xiangyang challenges the aristocracy directly in favor of a system of bourgeois merit. But the analogy only goes so far because Xiangyang lacks a commitment to commerce and therefore to capitalism. And usually in Marxist theory, the bourgeois revolutionaries are replacing an aristocratic feudal state with a bourgeois capitalist state. That's not what Shangyang calls for because he's for agriculture, not for industrialization or for rule by the merchants. However, you can see how for Mao that might almost be a positive thing. You know, Shangyang doesn't like merchant consciousness. He doesn't think that the merchants are sufficiently pro-state or pro-collective or pro-people. So... In some ways, uh, that makes Shangyang's work more attractive to Mao rather than less attractive. But it makes Ma the Maoist you know, progressive reactionary comp uh, fit less well. You could also see some possible lines of influence in Maoist policy. You know, Mao has a commitment to simple rural peasant consciousness, unadorned, unsophisticated, not dressed up, right? The People's Republic of China has an extensive state surveillance apparatus, something Xiangyang thinks is very important. You've got to see what everybody's doing so that you can punish everybody. Right? And the suspicion of business people, the thought that business people are decadent or corrupt and that this is a problem. We see this a lot with Xi Jinping and his purging of the corrupt officials. Uh, that echoes Xiangyang, too. You could draw parallels with you know, the COVID policy of strict punishments, lots of state surveillance. Uh, you could see parallels with the social credit system. That's a very kind of Shangyang kind of thing, getting people on every little thing they do, making sure every little thing is rewarded or punished. But there are fundamental discontinuities between modern China and Shangyang. Uh, principally, Shangyang's political economy is not modern. There's nothing modern about saying that economic growth is based on agriculture and war. Right? Straightforwardly, he does not sound like Benjamin Constant in that respect. He does not sound like uh, you know, Montesquieu. He's not acknowledging commerce as, say, a driver of economic growth. Uh, and uh, I, I do think, though, that you could say that the advice that rulers not feel bound by the way things were done in the past could be taken in an economic direction and perhaps is taken in an economic direction in China these days, right? If China wishes to keep growing, it has to adapt to new situations instead of carrying on with growth models that are no longer effective. So right now, for instance, China's economy relies too much by almost all accounts on constructing superfluous buildings that nobody needs, you know, apartment complexes that nobody lives in. Because you know, when the state stimulus money is, is put up, uh, this money gets funneled into these contractor companies and the contractor companies, they, they build these buildings to have something to do. But a lot of the buildings end up not really getting used or end up getting demolished. 
right? So if you want to have more sustainable growth, that money needs to be transferred somewhere else. Uh, someone like Michael Pettis thinks that what's needed is that the purchasing power of ordinary Chinese workers needs to increase, that they're not receiving the benefits of the growth, and that if they receive the benefits of the growth, they could drive a new phase of growth. The issue, of course, is that you have these entrenched in interests in the construction industry because you've created these big construction companies. Now those companies and the, rural, uh, the uh, regional and local governments that interact with them and funnel money to them, those interest groups do not want to make major changes to the economy that will move money over to the ordinary Chinese workers. So you know, if you really want to unlock more growth, you've got to challenge this set of entrenched elites, right? Like Sheng went after the aristocrats. So the Chinese state today, the way of interpreting Sheng uh, might be uh, that China needs to challenge this entrenched sector of construction and local government interests so that the Chinese people can enjoy the benefits of China's hard-won development. That would be a way of reading Sheng Yang, which doesn't stick rigidly to his economic prescriptions, but is in the spirit of not being wed to one particular set of solutions from the past and uh, not being overly deferential to a set of elites who are no longer contributing to the growth of the state. Uh, Westerners do sometimes think that the PRC will face the same fate as the Qin dynasty, that eventually the, the rules and the oppression will lead to rebellions that produce state collapse. Right? And Westerners often say that this will happen if there's any sustained slowdown in economic growth, because if the rewards that incentivize compliance with the rules go away, then people will stop complying with the rules. The system doesn't have much of a backstop in the event that the rewards are no longer there. But you should bear in mind that some of these methods are more effective now than they were in antiquity. State capacity has increased a lot through modern technology. The state has a much easier time suppressing rebellion with modern weapons and surveillance and the internet than it used to. And Chinese political theorists also are aware that there is a need to supplement the coercive rules-based apparatus with additional forms of legitimation. There is an awareness that this by itself doesn't get the job done, but generally in the history of Chinese thought, it's been believed that this plays a role, that this plays an important role, and that you don't do without this. So that would be kind of the, the reception, which is an overly long answer to your question. Uh, so let's let you get back into What did you want to say, Alex? What were you thinking about? Um, I can't remember. <laughs> Something. Ah, I think it was about not being bound by the past, but I was more thinking about when you said there's nothing modern about agriculture and war. I don't know. It seems like the basis of the economy still. Well, as, as the engines of economic growth... The states that are growing are not the ones that are, say, necessarily growing the most food, and they are also not making money by invading territory, right? Now, I think you could make the point that a large military is important, say, for defending a system of commerce. That's how, say, the United States uses its military to defend and uphold a system of international trade. But the way of using the military that 
Shenyang is is likely thinking of invading another state, taking its territory, and by taking its territory, accumulating the farmland that previously belonged to that other state, and therefore being able to use that farmland to uh, supply more food so that you can have a larger army or so that you can... Um, you know, have a larger population than other other neighboring states for the purposes of building a larger army to acquire more land so that you can have more foods, so that you can have more people. Uh, this is is not the model that contemporary states use. But you're right to point out that the military still has a role to play in modern states. It's just a different role, generally. Um, you know, the, the current attempt by Russia to take territory in Ukraine notwithstanding. Yeah, I was more making like an edgy point about the military industrial complex being this huge driver of growth. But also when you talk about agriculture, maybe I should have said something like proletariat because Shangyang is trying to collapse all the people into one kind of big class. And maybe there's a similar thing happening today. Fewer merchants, fewer braves, fewer scholars. Yeah. Yeah, the military, yeah, it, it certainly has a role to play in economic growth today, just a different role in the military today is also often the place that states go to invest in science and technology and therefore in new forms of, of what will eventually be industrial development. All of that would not have been around for Shanghai. But yes, the military has adapted and evolved to play a different role in, say, the contemporary United States in uh, contemporary American economic growth. Uh, you make a good point there. Would the investment be like the reducing? Because the whole point in this book is if you build something up, you've got to then knock it down later to keep things balanced. So make rich people poor and that kind of thing. Make the army. Well, as you, yeah, as you introduce, introduce a greater level of competitiveness, it becomes necessary to prevent large parts of the population from wasting the output, right? If you have a bunch of warring states and they're competing with each other in a very intense competition, it's necessary to make sure that what the people are doing enables you to win that competition if you're running the state, right? So the stuff people are doing that doesn't contribute to winning the competition, you want to disincentivize. And maybe you're suggesting, and if you are, I think it's an interesting point, that uh, Lately, there's been a little bit of a shrinking of the options for people in Western states as the global economy becomes more competitive, as trade becomes more competitive rather than, than war fighting. But as the trade system becomes more competitive, there is a drying up of things that people might otherwise do that don't contribute to trade. So whereas in this case, it's, it's a paradigm focused around war, today there's competitiveness in relation to trade, and that competitiveness means that there are fewer opportunities for people to do things that don't contribute to trade, that don't have a tradable advantage. I think that, that would be an interesting way of kind of making a parallel point that is not precisely the same as the Shangyang point, but rhymes with it. This might be a tangent, but when you're talking about competing uh I, you know, Shangyang talks about the different periods of history and how in middle antiquity you compete with doctrines because it's about honoring talent and then that fades away. Does that link with anything or not? Hmm. You have different phases and like what you compete on is, yeah, changes. Yeah. So maybe this is a good time to talk about some of those comparisons to 18th century um, and, and 17th century thought. Uh, you know, in some respects, Shangyang does feel 
pretty modern because he doesn't talk about virtue and he promotes a system of incentives that exploits our vices to get us to behave. Right? Uh, he opposes noble privileges. He argues the law should apply equally to all. You know, so like Rousseau and unlike Hobbes, the ruler is only established when society is evolved enough to need rules. Rules become important when populations increase, scarcity intensifies, and competition becomes necessary. Right? So for Rousseau, in the natural state, we didn't have to compete with each other and we didn't have uh, you know, amor propre. We didn't have all these negative consequences of having this high population society where we all live together. You can see some parallels in Shangyang to Rousseau there. But whereas, say, uh, Rousseau thinks that we can in some way return to something resembling this natural state through political change, Shangyang uh, you know, suggests that scarcity is now a hard political effect with deep consequences for politics. And in that way, he sounds more like Hobbes, right? Because Hobbes, for Hobbes, scarcity is this fundamental aspect of the human condition that structures what's possible. So with Shangyang, that this uh, history, the kind of stages of history have created a situation which you could argue is sort of like the Rousseauian model, worse than the natural condition. But whereas Rousseau thinks you can recover the advantages of the natural condition, for Shangyang, those are, are likely gone. At least in the context in which he's operating. That said, you know, it's, he doesn't say it's just a permanent feature of the human condition. It is a consequence of advanced forms of agriculture that allowed the population to increase. So he doesn't frame scarcity as, uh, as, a, as fixed a fact as, say, Hobbes does. It's more fixed than it is for Rousseau, but less fixed than in Hobbes because it is contingent. It's almost like he wants to create artificial scarcity. The whole point is about... People are too comfortable when they get what they desire. So you should try and limit their desires and then they'll just be comfortable with whatever comes and they'll be creative and innovative. So you Well, I think for Shangyang, there is scarcity at the level of the state competition. In the Warring States period, there is a scarcity of farmland, of food, of troops for, from the state's point of view. Particular individuals can try to use a system of, of aristocracy and the and nobility and status to insulate themselves from these competitive mechanisms. And that's why for Shangyang, that system has to be broken up and torn apart because that system is allowing a lot of people to not give their time and energy to farming and fighting, but instead to do other things. So if you get rid of those aristocrats and then you use a system of rewards and punishments to get them to do things that aid the state in its competition with other states, for him, you'll then have a state that's more competitive than your neighbors that have failed to do that and still have this set of aristocrats parasitically doing poetry <laughs> and you know, thinking about what's good and you know, not fighting and not growing enough food. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just thinking about scarcity again. I don't know where I was going to yeah. go. Though. Um, yeah. Well, while you, while you think about that, I also want to make a little bit of a comparison with Bernard Mandeville. We did an episode on Mandeville, you know, some time ago. You know, Mandeville, who argues that people are, are not virtuous, but that actually their lack of virtue is a good thing. You know, for Mandeville, the fact that we want to be comfortable means that we buy all these luxury goods and that results in economic growth. 
Shangyang doesn't quite have the same view as Mandeville because he doesn't think that commerce is what allows the state to develop. He thinks those luxury goods are not at all relevant to war fighting. So, instead of suggesting that this selfishness is a good thing, what Shangyang suggests is that it's just a fact that you have to deal with. And the way you deal with it is by making these rules that compel people to do what they really, what would really benefit the state, as opposed to the things they would otherwise choose to do on their own. So he shares the kind of negativity that you see in Mandeville. But again, the lack of commitment to commerce really sets Shang Yang apart from those Enlightenment theorists that otherwise you might feel like you ought to compare him to. It's the political economy that is really you know, quite different. He sounds a little bit too much like a physiocrat, effectively, for you to say that he's you know, a by-the-book enlightenment theorist. To kind of summarize, like modern versus ancient, you know, what, what would I say would be the modern Western kind of aspects here? Uh, you know, equality before the law and no role for virtue. Uh, the more antique aspects are wealth coming from agriculture and war and not trade. And so that's the kind of combination here. You have uh, a kind of stark shunting together of these two different things. So if you look at it from one point of view, it sounds you know, a lot more modern than you might expect. But from the other point of view, it's, it's way out of date insofar as uh, there's really no role for commerce in, in any of this. Um, the thing that is distinctively Shang, though, and I think really makes him interesting, it's not just that he combines those things in a way that's a little bit unusual. What's really distinctive about him is that total contempt for intellectuals and high culture that he has. That is really, I think, the unique feature of this view. The totalizing critique of the professional class that it implies. And I think if you were to look at Shang Yang and... Uh, from the point of view, maybe not of contemporary China, but of the contemporary United States, you know, what we're seeing now is a lot of people arguing that the talking that's going on in the humanities and social sciences does not contribute to the state or does not contribute to the economy. And that this talking has become you know, not a way of morally bettering people, but just a way of distracting people and wasting their time. There are a lot of Shang Yang arguments getting made about the arts and humanities these days. And of course, as someone who is in you know, political theory, you have to be a little wary about theorists who call for liquidating the class that gives you political theory. <laughs> but I think this is, you know, if you're talking about contemporary applications in the West as opposed to in China, the thing that really sticks out is that this is a, a straightforward critique of the professional class for being a set of time wasters. Is, is the main time-wasting aspect, that antique view, that they're not useful in war when it comes to it. Like, in peacetime, you can get by with the six parasites, but when it comes to war, they'll just run when the enemies are coming. So if you start hearing... Well, so that would be the kind of orthodox Shang Yang point. I think the, what I'm looking to suggest here is that rather than being useless in war, the critique of the arts and humanities now is that they're useless in trade. They're useless to capitalism. They don't produce money. You can't make money by doing them. The economy doesn't benefit from people doing them. Employers don't 
care to employ people who have training in these areas and that therefore they're not necessary or not important. And the usual arts humanities kind of argument is that, well, these things edify people. They you know, make people you know, more thoughtful and help people think about what's good and help people make decisions. You know, you've heard me talk about this kind of stuff on other episodes in the past, I'm sure. That argument straightforwardly doesn't go for Shang Yang because he thinks that people are not good and they won't get better. And that this is just a way for people to avoid farming and fighting. You know, in some ways, it's a very kind of, you know, stereotypical boomer argument <laughs> that all of this, you know, talk about trying to make people better is just a way to avoid doing the work that you otherwise ought to be doing. When he, when he wants people to be good at war or like you say nowadays in trade uh, is, well, his reason for or his way that you reach that in war is make government act supreme. Does the same apply for trade nowadays? And that all this talk by intellectuals or, or private pursuit by artisans where they can move their own capital means that, yeah, it, there's, the government isn't supreme enough. That's why they don't help the state. Yeah, so this raises a question about whether the same kind of political management, which Shang Yang recommends then would be appropriate now in different circumstances. And what I am... More likely to go with is that Shang Yang would say that the way that it was done then doesn't impinge on how it ought to be done now. The whole book starts with that argument that you shouldn't get overly stuck on the way things were done in the past. And that's why even though Shang Yang has a political economy that's grounded in you know, ancient societies with you know, lots of agriculture and conventional warfare with pointy sticks and sh sharp objects, uh, you know, that he would not be wedded to that set of views in a context where there are radically different ways for generating economic growth and where, say, being industrialized or being technologically advanced is very important for having a competitive state. In Shang Yang's context, oftentimes people who might appear to him to be primitive would be advantaged in war fighting. You know, steppe populations from Mongolia would be advantaged in war fighting, uh, in, in part because they are not troubled by the 10 parasites. But there's almost a pattern to those kinds of statements. They always fall into this, uh, like, for example, if you're a weak country, you should attack a strong country, basically, because you're savages. And it's like, it's almost like if you're rich, you should make them poor. You know, it, just finding opposites and then saying, if, if A, then not A. And then you can just... Yeah, rhetorically, he likes paradoxes. Okay. He likes to kind of create these rhetorical paradoxes. It's part of how he likes to argue. Uh, and he uses weak and strong in an unconventional way, in part to kind of get you thinking and turn you on your, uh, your head a little bit. Get things all turned around. And it's the aim, basically, to say it's all about the results, pragmatism, dirtying your hands. And whatever works to get that done is what's good. And good is not the good. Good is just efficiency. Yeah. Uh, it's written very much from the standpoint of these states are warring and they need to win. And what helps you win versus what doesn't help you win. And trying to draw very hard and sharp lines between those things. Clarity is a, a very important thing for Shang Yang. I think for other theorists, it would look a bit like a fetish. 
But for Shenyang, it's very important to be clear. You want to be clear about punishments. You want to be clear about what you should be encouraging and what you shouldn't. And the role of the state is to make things clear. It's to cut through that complexity and make it obvious what somebody ought to do or shouldn't do through the system of incentives rather than through a set of moral arguments that can produce endless conversation. And that endless conversation becomes something people do or specialize in rather than make you know, food and fight wars. Um, yeah, we see certain similarities insofar as a lot of contemporary people are looking to get rid of ways of, of talking that don't contribute to economic growth. It does, yeah, it does seem like a fetish because there's a lot of blaming involved maybe. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was a little bit different about, say, Cold War political thought in the States, you know, in the Cold War, there was kind of an acknowledgement that alongside the competitive mechanism, you also were fighting an ideological war. So you needed to persuade people that you had a better way of life than the other side. And therefore, you had to you know, come up with all sorts of theories about what was good about, say, American life or what was good about, say, Soviet life. You had to make those kinds of arguments. And this kind of thinking it really says that that's a distraction. There's no point to those arguments. And if you think about this in a kind of end of history, Francis Fukuyama sense, right? If we've come to the end of history and there really isn't any alternative to our system anyway, and nobody can conceive of any alternative anyway, then what do we really need a whole bunch of ideological arguments for the system for? You know, why do we need to spend a bunch of time justifying it if there really isn't anything else anybody can do anyway? You know, isn't all that talking, you know, less important than it used to be. At this point, a lot of the stuff that comes out of universities ostensibly to legitimate or justify the system makes just as many people angry as it does happy. It's not as if there's any particular ideological or cultural account of what the state is for that would satisfy the whole population. There's enormous differentiation and variety now in terms of what people value, what people want the state to do. So when people make arguments, ah, the state is, is good because it does this, or the state's okay because it does that, those arguments appeal very narrowly, and they often upset just as many people, if not more people, than they please. So... I think there's an argument now that there's almost no point even to trying to make up justifications for state power. Why even bother trying to justify it if the set of incentives that you create straightforwardly pushes people to do the things you need them to do, then you don't need this further set of ideology unless there's some possibility of rebellion. But if you foreclose the possibility of rebellion because you have this really advanced surveillance state that's able to nip rebellion in the bud before it even gets going, uh, because you have a lack of imagination, nobody's able to come up with any other kind of political system. If you've really you know, gotten that far with your state repression, then what do you need all the talking for? We're pausing a minute as Alex thinks about that. Well, I have no idea where to take that because, you know... <laughs> it's, it's, yeah maybe what I would say if we're not trying to be saying he's just about one thing so he's always sensitive to changing circumstances and we know that force is a means towards virtue we're still saying that love exists but 
the awe or the terror comes first. So it's first terror, then love, as opposed to the normal order, which is first love and then backed up by terror. You see where I'm going? It's like he still has uh, talk and like what I said at the beginning, maybe there's still disagreement, but it's so suppressed and private and taboo. Like it's kind of in the very, yeah, never mind. It's marginalized. Well, it has to be there though, because it has to yeah. be love for the ruler, and it has to, yeah, yeah. There's there's a focus on you know what can be defined very straightforwardly is for Shangyang what is in the public interest, and the state's role is to define it, encourage it, and to punish things that contravene it. Inside society, you otherwise get this enormous amount of other stuff, of kind of personal stuff, personal difference. And that is, is okay, provided it doesn't impinge upon all of this. And indeed, it's inevitable because for him, you aren't going to be able to make people better. You're not going to make people able to get along better with each other or to agree with each other. You won't create a consensus. You won't make people better. But you can make it very clear what behaviors you will and will not allow. Is it fair to say the direction of the economy is making money off of personal differences more now, which leaves you in an interesting position oh that's an interesting thought uh yes i think that that may be right i mean so much of of capitalism is about identity construction about constructing who you are as an individual making kind of statements about who you are trying to say i have this essence and it's reflected by this stuff that i buy so especially in consumer economies heavily consumer driven economies like the united states that plays a very prominent role and all of that is fine up until the point at which it substantively would conflict with the engine of economic growth, which in you know, Shang Yang's time would be agriculture and war, but in our time would be capitalism and commerce, right? So you can have all sorts of aesthetic identity construction stuff that makes money, but once you cross into the territory of actually threatening the system of commerce with behaviors in your life that are not economically uh, generative, that's when the incentive structure has to start to clamp down on you. When you start to really live your life in a way that no way contributes to the economy, that's when this system of incentives starts to really get at you. It would seem, you know, they have this idea of unification of punishment and reward. So that everyone is single-minded on, on, in both. And in his time, unification of punishment meant the simplest crime would be punished as much as the most heinous crime, because a crime is a crime, should be punished. But then, and that would maybe be the same as nowadays. But then if we're talking about unification of rewards, so the positive stuff, maybe that's different. Maybe it used to be, oh, everyone's a farmer, simple-minded. And then when the call comes, they die in battle. Nowadays, it's oh, everyone uh, has that identity and they reinforce it with what they buy. And that actually means that they end up being different, but they're still unified in their rewards in that as long as they're bringing in money, they're not incurring the unification of punishment. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we see difference even in the kind of small town farming community where there's a lot of sniping and gossip and attempts to differentiate on the basis of who's better or who's more virtuous, right? All of that's fine for Shang Yang, provided it's 
in accordance with the law and it doesn't disrupt the farming. You can have a really gossipy small town you know, village where everybody says really mean, nasty things about each other all the time, as long as it doesn't get in the way of the farming. And as long as when there's a call to the village to fight, the village fights, right? The village has to produce the amount of food that it's expected to produce. It has to produce the revenue it needs to produce, and it needs to produce the fighting men. And all of the other differentiation that occurs behind the scenes effectively, that is not a problem provided that the laws are followed, the rules are followed, and those outcomes happen. And in the same way for the modern state, in a parallel way, not exactly the same, there is a lack of concern about how much we don't get along with each other culturally and how much we fight with each other culturally and in terms of values and morals and ideals, provided that at the end of the day, we all go to work and we all buy what we need to buy and we don't drop out in that more substantive thick sense. Is, is he making a subtle critique of society when he's like, oh, you want wicked people, so then they can comply with the law. Uh, if you want good people, they're just going to be lawbreakers. Do you think he's like actually saying, oh, look, see, it's just terrible. Well, people who are called good are often lawbreakers. I mean, we did that Gandhi episode a little while ago, and a big part for Gandhi of being a good person is not following the law when the law is unjust. You can see how such a person is an obvious problem for Shanghai. <laughs> But and such a person such would be a, a deep annoyance. But also an outlier. I think most law-breaking is, you know. Well, most law-breaking is that, but violent. Okay. It's not you know, Gandhi okay. just not following the law. It's also starting a band of brigands who habitually violate the peace and steal things and uh, cause uh, villages to be abandoned by ransacking them and preventing the farms from being worked by disrupting uh, life. When you think about that, the brigands, you know, we're really talking about a time when there are brigands, there are bands of marauders who really disrupt food production. They show up in a village and they cause trouble and they, you know, everybody has to leave if nobody comes to stop the raiding. People have to get up and leave and the land is left fallow by the disruption. And then you can get, you know, famines as a result of chronic underproduction. You can get you know, you know, nasty, nasty things can happen. And then, you know, if you have famines too many years, then you don't have enough people and then your army's too small and you know, things can go very badly wrong if you don't get the basics of order. It's Maybe it's still applicable, though, like stressing that for most people, it's, it, yeah, it's good to get the basics of order before you think about yeah although today we are so far from having this kind of disorder in Western countries. What we, I think, are more worried about is just, yeah, and that's why I like to emphasize the part of the theory that talks about the talkers. What we seem to be more worried about is overproduction of professionals or overproduction of elites who are not willing to do work that contributes to the economy, want to be paid to talk, want to be paid to write or to make art, uh, won't be satisfied with other things. They go against nature. Like, like he said about the academics, they have, they, they eat food, but it doesn't actually nourish them. You know, they, they eat food, but they won't grow it. Yeah. 
they they want the food to just show up. They want somebody else to make the food. And you can see how this is this is something that Chairman Mao could get into. The, the argument here is that the intellectuals are parasites, that they are taking a surplus value. And instead of putting that surplus into the growth or the development of the state, they're expending it on the construction of a high culture. But that, that goes against nature, right? Because in nature, if you build up uh, something, then you have to expend it. Whereas these guys, it's like they're building up some capacity, but they're never lowering it out in, in, by fighting a war, by growing crops. They're just building, building, building. It, ne- it never leads to anything material that matters as far as Shang Yang is concerned. All that talking, it never contributes to anything. Now, if you're someone who believes that there is a need for you know, theories of what makes life meaningful or valuable to motivate people to do stuff, or if you think that you need to justify the state in theoretical terms for people to accept it and that it's not enough to have rules, you know, then there's a case for having some of these people. But for Shang Yang, it's not necessary to do all of that moral talking. And indeed, all that moral talking does is it induces more people to do more talking. It doesn't set up a counter base against abuses by the law officials that Shang Yang trusts. Like, surely he as a theorist would want to not, yeah, not, not create an un, uh, a breakaway class of law officials. Who in, yeah. yeah, he does have a concern about this who's watching the watchman problem. Yeah. And there is an acknowledgement here that you, you're not going to get perfect order because no matter how many people you have watching, there, there's always a need to watch whoever's watching. And you can assign people to watch each other, but yeah, it's difficult. And that's why when you do have an official in a more senior role who commits a crime, you've got to punish them. It's not just about showing everyone that everybody will be punished. It's about preventing this lawbreaking from making its way into the punishment system itself, the bureaucracy itself. So there is this constant need for vigilance. And you see that in you know, a lot of Communist one-party states have this sense of you constantly have to police out the problems within the state apparatus. You've constantly got to deal with rising elites or entrenched interest groups that are getting in the way of further development. And the Chinese state is very aware of the need to be concerned about interest groups that get established through previous models of growth that no longer work in the way that they once did but are now an obstacle to transitioning to newer, more effective growth models. There is an acute awareness that this is important. And also a general feeling that the Soviet Union was not able to do this, and that's why it collapsed, that the Soviet Union allowed entrenched interest groups to form that frustrated its transition to a different economic model that would have allowed it to keep growing. And that the thing that separates China ultimately from the Soviet Union is its ability to root out these groups and these entrenched interests rather than allow them to sit in front of the state's growth and obstruct it. And so we're seeing now, I think, one of the big questions for China is, can it do that? Can it transition from a growth model, which increasingly is not effective, to something else, which means it has to succeed in removing these impediments, these, you know, uh, elites that previously were instrumental in growth, but have now become obstacles to further growth. They have to be in some way removed. And that this is the big question for Xi Jinping. Can he remove them? Or will Chinese growth be obstructed by them and frustrated by them? 
in the years to come. Maybe not. Yeah. It's, would violence work? Just making an example out of them. As Shang Yang recommends, <clears throat> just simple deterrent. Well, this is being tried. The arresting of the very rich people and sending them off to the camps, uh, that is something that the Chinese state tries. Uh, it's and, softer. And does. I mean, it's still harsh compared to the West, right? Horrible, but, you know, also not but compared to, the, you know, the history of China. It's pretty lovely, actually. So, <laughs> Well, we don't know exactly what happens to the people who get hauled off. We don't really know what becomes of them. When somebody disappears... And then reappears sometime later, maybe, and then gives an apologetic statement. We don't really know what goes on in the meantime. I was thinking of Jack Ma, so maybe that's quite a high profile um, one. So maybe they'd be treated better than most, huh? But well, even even in those cases, we don't really know exactly what happens. It's hard to say for sure what goes on when somebody disappears for a while in China. So that's not just China, right? That's the West as well. I'm sure. So I guess it's a rule of statecraft. Well, yeah, it's, it's something which can certainly potentially apply in the United States. Um, yeah, when we're talking about the United States, yeah, it's, it's a different tradition. So I don't think that Shenyang's thought has had as much of an impact in the United States. There are different theories of you know, how to administer the criminal justice system and what the bureaucracy is for and how you maintain rule of law that have been more influential in the Western context. But I think it's fun sometimes to apply Sheng Yang's theories in the Western context, not because they are straightforwardly influencing it, but because uh, it's a different lens through which to view our situation. Mm. Maybe a high income, high tax economy with a population that can't really move anywhere. Like I was saying in the beginning, that's what I meant by proletariat, I guess. Maybe that applies, but I don't want to shoehorn it into some kind of Marxist thing. But yeah, you know, <laughs> that's what I'm kind of tending to do. So, Well, it, yeah, it, can be, it can be taken in different directions. And that's part of what's interesting about this theory and why I think it has perennial influence because the theory starts with don't be bound by what's happened in the past. It's framed explicitly as, you know, this is not a set of dogmas that you just rigidly follow. This is not a set of, of strict rules for how to run the state. Rather, this is a solution devised for a particular setting, but there are certain principles for how to think about solutions that are laid out here that you can take into your own context or setting, right? Um, because it's open in that way to being reconceptualized for different situations, that gives it a certain vitality as a theory, and that makes it easy for people to take inspiration from it, but then revise it in ways that suit their own situations. And I think that's generally what's happened with this theory. And it's easy to then say, well, I'm not just doing this. I'm not just doing legalism. I'm not just doing Shang Yang because I'm not doing the specific things that he recommends. While at the same time, taking some inspiration from the way in which he thought about problems. And so, you know, when I talk about you know, oh, this has an interesting implicit critique of the talkers. Well, it's possible that Shang Yang wouldn't have that critique of the talkers now. Today, in, in our situation, he might see them as playing an important or pivotal role. For instance, even if the talkers do not um, make the state look good, maybe they 
through the cultural antagonisms create uh, they create drive people into a kind of identity construction that results in their spending lots of money or making big donations to political campaigns that they wouldn't otherwise make. And so maybe the talking now has a different kind of function from the function that it would have been supposed to have had during the Cold War. And that makes certain kinds of talking insofar as that talking gooses identity formation or makes people want to construct identities and want to buy things. Uh, you know, maybe that still performs a role that has value to the state, even if not in the sense in which we previously would have evaluated it if we were thinking about this in the 60s or in the 70s. You know, there's lots of room to play around with this theory and think about new ways in which it might operate or might not operate. But I, I do think that there are certain similarities to the, to the more straightforward dismissal of talkers that we are increasingly seeing in Western discussion. Uh, you know, that more obviously rhymes with Shang Yang's theory in a way that is, is kind of fun and, and kind of interesting to think about. Do you think it's possible to be a very good talker without having any experience? Or do you think after a while people, or even immediately people will just tell? It's just sophist, it's just made up. Well, so this is something that Shang Yang is, is worried about. If you were talking at a time when people were ignorant, then you could be very influential because if you have a bunch of rhetorical and conversational skills and very few other people do, then your charisma advantage is going to allow you to get people to do what you want them to do. But if you're in a time where there's a lot of competition for talking and lots of people are talking, then you're not going to just be able to win the argument or to exercise a kind of charisma that allows you to dominate the way everybody thinks. And part of what's going on now is there are a lot, a lot of people talking. And so nobody is able to dominate the discussion or get people to all behave in a particular way on the basis of being eloquent. And so that, I think, is something about now that does rhyme with this warring states period. You know, there was no possibility of any one school winning the argument through discussion. And so you get this kind of discussion arms race that doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't result in anybody winning and establishing order. You don't establish order through conversation. <laughs> you have to establish order some other way. Is it like in, in every case when you apply this theory, it's just balancing out whatever tendency is too excessive? So if the people are stupid, they'll want to get clever. So allow them to get clever. They'll, they're, too talk they're talking too much now. Time to make them stupid again. Just balancing the excess. Well, I think I think that the main thing about this theory that's a constant is that it adopts the point of view of the state. It adopts the point of view of the state and it takes it as a given that what you're trying to do is maintain order. And what you're trying to do is make a really powerful competitive state. And if you're not trying to do that, and a lot of people, when they think about political theory, they're not trying to do that. And so for them, this will look like a deeply wicked, evil, fell theory. Uh, and those people have the same attitude to say Hobbes' Leviathan. For them, that theory is aiming at goals that they simply do not share. Um, I think that sometimes people are overly harsh about these theorists. They were operating in periods of great disorder and chaos where 
there was more of a premium on order or peace than there is now. And you can understand why they would care an awful lot about those things. But today, for some people, that's a, a cowardly attitude to have or it's a servile attitude to have. Because today we exist in a time where there's been a lot of peace for the most part for quite a while. And you have more of the problem of boredom than you have the problem of, uh, of chaos. So for a lot of people... Yeah, you, there's more of a sense of ennui or a sense that life isn't offering meaningful possibilities. And for those people, this kind of stuff is, is prioritizing things that, if anything, we have too much of. We have so much order now that it's hard to even imagine getting out from under the thing that we now have. Uh, and we're so frustrated by the system that we are now in that um, you know, we aren't at all happy that we seem stuck in this in this schema but for these guys the the schema was not firmly established and so if you could just establish order you had solved what seemed to many people at the time to be a real problem and you know you might think more similarly if you're you lived in a place that was being constantly marauded by invading armies or groups of brigands or ruffians or whatever the case may be uh, we're always going to be a little bit estranged from the Hobbeses and the Shangyangs because we don't live in that kind of situation. Uh, you know, there are people in the world today who do, people who live in, in failed states and in uh, areas of civil conflict. One of the things that's uh, always fascinating to me is when you have a civil war going on in a country, there will always be expats from the country who don't live in the country and don't have to worry about being killed in the civil war who will advocate for intervention and for escalating the conflict so that their preferred side can win. And of course, the people who live in the country, while they might feel that way initially, over time, the effect of civil conflict is to just make everybody want the war to end. If it goes on long enough, that's what it tends to do. But expats who don't live in the country and aren't subject to the fear that civil war creates, they don't, it doesn't have that effect on them. And so often when you're talking to someone who's an expat, there's an out-of-touchness with this issue of civil conflict that you get. And so when states are looking to intervene to prolong wars, they will often trot out expats from the country who will say that the intervention is needed or necessary. Those expats are assets to states that want to make foreign interventions happen for that reason. And it, it's not their fault, though. They, they don't you know, experience the consequences. So for them, those consequences aren't real. But if you live in a state that's been in a civil war for, I mean, the warring states period is centuries long, but even a state that's been in civil war for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, it really gets old. It really gets old. And people really get to a point where they just want it to end. The difficulty is if you end it in a way that doesn't deal with the underlying issues that led to the conflict, then after a few decades, when people get bored again, the thing can start up again. And you, you want them to be ready to die for you at any moment in peace as well. So it's hard, isn't it? You, you want them to want conflict as well. Well, you want them to, you know, for Shenyang, you want them to pursue glory and to recognize that the way to get glory is to fight on behalf of the state. Uh, so, yeah, there is some risk there that if you are not commanding the troops, but they are commanded by somebody else, you know, by another state or by a band of ruffians that, that they may seek glory at your expense. 
this is why it's so important to acquire territory and to get bigger than other people for Shenyang. You need to have the bigger army with more farmland and more people so that you don't end up uh, outcompeted by these other armies that surely do exist and did exist at the time. Although if you have too much land for too few people, it's like having too few people. And that's why obviously all people, all adults who live in the same house should start their own house and yeah incentives for populating the land all that yeah the the constant competition the constant emphasis on farming yes if someone's able to raise plenty of money from their estate because they have a large estate they'll start getting involved in rich people activities like poetry Mm. and doing political theory and doing philosophy of religion and other such things and uh, no, no, Shangyang doesn't want people doing those surplus value activities, those aristocratic activities. He doesn't want aristocrats to exist as a class. And so he wants laws that compel estates to be divided up in such a way that you don't get aristocrats. And if you do, at least make them buy their titles. I don't know if we have that today, but. Well, insofar as you do have yeah, a system of status, which you do, he does introduce one, but it's a merit-based system, which requires that people do other things first before they get their title and the title can't just be inherited uh, you know to uh, you know someone who hasn't done anything it's a title that is earned during your lifetime and and that's it mm. titles that revert to the state to be passed out again only when another comes along who deserves them so that they don't allow for independent power bases or the construction of noble families. You know, that's, that's the aim there. So a lot of people will find a lot to like in this, but also I think a lot to dislike. And I, I find it a, 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 he's a fascinating theorist, Shang Yang, for that reason. He, there's something for everybody in, in Shang Yang and there's something everybody really won't like. <laughs> yeah, he, he insults me. He insults all of us who like to talk about this stuff, which is why his reputation is never great among the people that he really needs to have a great reputation. The people who big up the reputations of thinkers are people who like to talk. Uh, And so he's never going to have a a sterling reputation. Nobody would ever talk about him like they would talk about Confucius. But when you mentioned his reception by people like Chairman Mao, I was thinking, yeah, more military government types, they would also like Shang Yang, wouldn't they? So. Well, and, and people who don't come from the talking class, who have an attitude of uh, you know, supporting the peasants or supporting the proletariat, they can find, and, and Chinese Marxists did find in Shang Yang, someone who supported liquidating an elite that has a parasitic relationship to the workers. And that's there, that's in this theory. I think it's good, though, because riches and wealth are below honor and glory, which is like Plato in a way. It's like you put the... Although, obviously, truth isn't first. That's one thing, actually. You balance all these other qualities, but you don't balance out untruthfulness. That's, that's the difference with other thinkers, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, you still have an emphasis on the things that, say, Plato would call silver and bronze, right? There's still an emphasis on honor and status. There's still an emphasis on... Uh, you know, pleasure and comfort and wealth. But these things are used, you know, kind of more like the way Montesquieu uses them. You know, if you think about Montesquieu and how he thinks you can have a set of people who are pursuing money and a set of people who are pursuing status, but that those have to be separated from one another. 
and held distinct. Uh, and if you hold them distinct, then you don't need people who are pursuing the good because the king will keep the wealth pursuers and the honor pursuers in different lanes. Mm. Right? You could find some parallels with other theorists who have dropped the idea that the good is something that can be pursued at scale or can be rendered politically tractable, uh, but who still entertain the idea that there's a status-oriented class of people and a pleasure or wealth-oriented class of people. Yeah, I haven't much more. I mean, it's just a passing, like, part of me thinks, oh, he's not really thinking about internal stuff because a lot of the Neoplatonists or religious thinkers, if they're talking about good qualities, then obviously, even though they're just talking about individuals, they're also talking about the state and what all people in the state need to cultivate, like Gandhi being an example. But then obviously, yeah, if there's people trying to kill you, the most important thing is to know how to defend yourself. You can't be worried about internal things like that. It has to be just hard work, basically. So, Well, this is how the people who survive such periods tend to think. Also, yeah. Of course, they may still be wrong. You know, for Gandhi, why would you want to survive such a period as this if this is what surviving entails? <laughs> Yeah, and if a rebirth is a thing as well, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I used to say sometimes when I was a kid, people would go, well, what would you do if there was an apocalypse, a zombie apocalypse? What would you do? And I, I used to say to people, well, I would just die. I'm not built for that. <laughs> and there's no shame in admitting it, you know. There's no shame in admitting it. Some of us are not built for such times. We all grew up in a time that's very different from this. If you're listening in any kind of rich Western country, we all grew up in a time that's very different from this. So none of us are well equipped for the kinds of situations described by people like Hobbes or Shang Yang. We are not equipped for it. And it's okay to admit that. A lot of people like to pretend that they could survive some kind of post-apocalyptic scenario. I'm sorry. We were not bred for such things. We were not. And it's okay. We all have our own times and our times encourage us to develop in different ways. And there's no shame in it. Different times, different people. It's the way it goes. It doesn't feel like he's shaming me, actually, because I was thinking, oh, I feel weak because I can't do that. But then he is all about hard work and consistency over talent. So as I guess if we're all being hardworking and consistent talkers... You know, at least there's something simple-minded and there's a unification of reward that we're pursuing. Yeah. <laughs> and a unification of punishment oh, yeah. insofar as all of those of us who do, you know, silly humanities and social science degrees will all end up jobless or underpaid or with no pensions, uh, relegated to the street, you know, like Diogenes, if Shang Yang gets his way. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap it up there for today. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.